0: Hi folks, it's Voss here from the Chris dot com. The dot com. Hey, we're coming here with a podcast. We certainly appreciate you tuning in oh my gosh another podcast by the way go back and listen to all 700 of the podcasts that we have up uh, from last year uh there's so many great authors we took and interviewed and you're going to want to read their books as well go to goodreads.com forward slash chris voss you can see all the books you're reading and reviewing and all that good stuff go to youtube.com forward slash chris voss and see the video version of this recording you can also go to facebook.com uh the chris voss show you can also search on facebook there's like four or five groups that we have on facebook uh so just search for the one you like and you can join it it's been kind of interesting people have been joining over there like crazy uh but there's like so many groups and like they're all pretty much the same um and uh linkedin as well there's a hundred and thirty-five thousand uh size group over there you can join uh check that on the show uh we have and a most amazing offer author author Offer of an Author is what we're having on the show today. Uh, and uh, this is his second book. This is a book that's be coming out on February 9th, 2021. So we're amping up the uh, the uh, anticipation for the release of this book. So you want to break out your credit card and get ready to uh, plunk down the pre-order on this now so you can tell all your friends that you were the first to read this book and uh, you were at the very edge cusp of the excitement and uh, the hottest, latest new book. How about that? How about that? Uh, I should get extra paid for this, Gavin, uh, for what (laughs) I'm doing here, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, We'll put an affiliate link on it and get a couple bucks. Uh, Anyway, guys, this gentleman's name is Gavin Mueller. Uh, He has written the new book that will be coming out February 9th, Breaking Things at Work. Uh, This is something that I do uh, when I'm uh, very angry, but evidently there's probably a more productive way he's put in his book to deal with this. The Luddites are right about why you hate your job. Let me tell you a little bit about Gavin. Gavin is a lecturer in new media and digital culture at the University of Amsterdam. He's written on the politics of music, film, and popular culture for outlets, including Jacobin, Jacobin, uh, in these times, Al Jazeera America, In Real Magazine, Breaking Things at Work is his second book, and we want to welcome him to the show. Gavin, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, Chris. Thank you. And I think I butchered uh, Jacobin. Do you want to correct me on the pronunciation of that?
1: Yeah, I butchered it when I started writing for them, uh, but it's actually Jacobin, yeah. Jacobin. I was yeah. not close.
0: Anyway... <laughs> So uh, give us your plugs where people can find you on the interwebs and uh, order up the book.
1: Yeah. uh, If you want to find me uh, probably Twitter is the best place. You can find me at Gavin Mueller PhD, just to distinguish myself from all the other Gavin Mueller's out there. Um, And uh, if you want to buy the book, uh, you can find it on Amazon, of course, uh, or you can order it directly from uh, Verso books on their website. Uh, and I think uh, if you pre-order it, you get a free ebook along with that. Oh, wow! Get the free ebook, guys. You get the
0: background. You want to get those collector's items too? You can say that you got it before before it was. Um, I like catching books early because I like being the first ones to read them. Because then I can go, "Hey, I read it first, man. I was there." It's kind of like Metallica. If you have the first album, the first four albums, then you then you were in on it or something. I don't know. Anyway, guys, uh, so what motivated you, Gavin? What made you go, you know what? I'm going to write a a book about this subject, and then we'll find out what that subject is here in a second.
1: It was a long process, you know, um, but uh, I was kind of paying attention to um, some of the debates uh, going on about you know, how work was changing with regards to technology, what the future was going to look like, and uh, in particular, how automation was going to lead to this kind of future where, you know, there wasn't going to be any work left. And, you know, what would that mean? Would we all be unemployed and starving? Would we all be, you know, relaxing and playing video games all day because we have a universal basic income? What, what will the future hold? And, you know, there was something that was bothering me about it is that a lot of these kinds of of uh, tales that were being spun were kind of vague about, you know, the actual technologies, uh, what work was like, Uh, and in particular, it made me think about a lot of jobs I've had. I've had a lot of different jobs, and uh, what would happen when I got a new piece of technology or I had to master a new piece of technology that was introduced to work? Uh, You know, I have to say, uh, it never felt like I was being liberated from, you know, drudgery. It never felt like I was leading towards a kind of post-work utopia. It always felt like I had more to do, like I was uh, being more tightly controlled, uh, and that the way that I'd figured out how to do my job with my coworkers was being kind of, uh, you know, upended, and I was going to have to figure everything else out, and it was a lot of hassle. So that very kind of basic feeling uh, from my experience and, you know, a lot of crappy jobs that I'm happy it don't work anymore was kind of the motivation to say, all right, well, you know, what, what is automation? Where does it come from? What is it, what does it do to work? What, what do we know from history? And, and also what do we know in particular, and this is really the, the meat of the book, what happens to, what, what have other workers done when they've been in similar situations, when new technologies have been come on the scene and altered their the way they've done their jobs? How did they respond? And what were the outcomes from that? And so that's really what this book is about, uh, is about, you know, we're, I go 200 years in the past and I try to bring it all the way forward to our kind of digital present and to really ask that. And what I found was, you know, A lot of workers had similar feelings to how I felt on the job. They didn't like when those those new technologies were introduced. And they struggled against them, organized against them. And that, you know, even when those struggles, you know, didn't really pan out uh, in an optimal way, there was still a lot of value there. And I think a lot that we can learn uh, by better understanding how things went. And in, and if we can do that, then we'll have like a more realistic vision of what the future might hold for us and how we can create a world of work that is, uh, you know, much more rewarding uh, for for the majority of us.
0: There you go. So you went back 200 years and in the title, you talk about this uh, group of people called the Luddites. Do you want to tell us more about them?
1: Yeah, So so... You know, some of you guys might have heard the term Luddite before. It's become a kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a pejorative term for someone who's like got this irrational hatred of technology. You know, uh, uh, so they, they you know, they maybe you're, you're you're you've got an older relative who, you know, can't do email and hates it and just rails about the Internet. Oh, they're, they're a Luddite right They're They have this they're 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 just against progress. They're stuck in the past. Right. Well, the Luddites were actually uh, real people uh, if, that were weavers. Uh, they worked in the textile industry uh, at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution in England. Uh, about uh, We're talking about the second decade of the 19th century, 1811 to 1815 was it, and they were really active. So these guys were textile weavers, they uh, made uh, clothing, and they, and they were skilled tradespeople. They were good at what they did. What they did took a lot of ability. It took a lot of knowledge. Uh, and because they were skilled, because they had that knowledge, um, and because they were independent craftspeople, they had a lot of autonomy over their lives. They could control the pace of work. They were really big on uh, the quality of their goods. They took a lot of pride in that. Uh, they wanted to make sure that women and children weren't being exploited in the work, um, and they also developed kind of thriving communities throughout uh, the north and the and the Midlands of England, where you had towns that had lots of these weavers and other textile workers who were you know who were making up the town. They had a pretty good livelihood. They had enough leisure time to. You know, do have hobbies and and be interesting people writing poetry, doing amateur biology—the kind of things that I think a lot of people would find to be a, a pretty pretty copacetic lifestyle. But then they had a problem, and the problem was uh, the industrial revolution is picking up steam. Textiles are one of the most important commodities of the time because everyone's got to wear clothes, and so people are looking at how to make uh, textiles in a more in a cheaper way. And this meant using new kinds of technologies uh, to, uh, that, that wouldn't require a really skilled, well-paid crafts to do. You could get, in fact, and they did, women and children to do it. And you could pay them very, very little. And so the Luddites uh, were opposed to this, not only because of their own kind of personal pride, but they immediately recognized that this was a threat not only to their jobs, but to their entire mode of existence, Their entire communities were threatened by the fact that all of a sudden you weren't going to need these guys anymore. You weren't going to have to pay them what they were getting paid. You could rely on really low skilled, low paid labor. Uh, You would have much lower quality textiles, but people were, were, you know, that was, they were going to, they were going to go with that. So the Luddites struggled against that. At first they said, look, we have, uh, you know, parliament passed laws. You're not allowed to do this we're going to go to Parliament and say, hey, you you agreed to protect us as workers, you know, tell them they got to knock off this factory stuff. Well, Parliament is busy at the time. This is uh, 1811, 1812. If you're American, you probably learned about the War of 1812, uh, you know, where we fought the British, they actually burned down the White House. But, uh, you know, that was only the tip of the iceberg, because this was actually like a global conflict. You have uh, England versus uh, Napoleon on the continent. You have strife in, uh, in the colonies in the Caribbean. So this is like a global struggle, right, uh, that's happening. This total tumult. If you think today is crazy, go back 200 years ago and people were really losing their minds. So uh, they're not really listening to these weavers from up north. They're like, whatever, guys, we've got bigger problems. In fact, maybe cheaper textiles are a good thing. So the Luddites had to take things into their own hands. And so what they decided to do was say, look, we got to get rid of these factories. We've got to send a message. Um, and they became famous for breaking machines, meaning they would go around to these factories. They'd band together, go out at night. Sometimes they had these really big hammers. And they'd go to the factories, in particular factory owners that were really not listening to them and not kind of trying to negotiate or compromise, and they would just smash the machines and say, we're putting you out of business. Um, And this got to a point where they were smashing a factory almost every night. Uh, And uh, factory owners started to arm themselves to fight back, to defend their factories, Parliament starts getting alarmed because, you know, this is a time of strife. There's political radicalism in the air. They don't know what's going on. Eventually, they send more troops to the north of England than they have fighting Napoleon in France because of how freaked out they are by the Luddites. One thing that I found in my research that was really interesting is in spite of very harsh policing measures, the Luddites were very good at not talking to authorities, and they had a lot of trouble discovering who was actually a part of these raids on factories, because these Luddites were very good at keeping a secret. Uh, their communities were well-organized. They had a really strong basis of solidarity. And that was something that made them both very scary for the government at the time, but also very heroic for a lot of the people who were struggling at the time. They said, wow, look at these people. They're really, they're really you know, sticking it to the man. In fact, some of the Luddites... Uh, in addition to breaking machines, they wrote a lot of nasty letters. There's a book uh, of that those letters that I is I, a really fun read actually. But in some of those letters, they would refer to uh, Robin Hood uh, because the the legend of Robin Hood is also from that same region of England. So they're really drawing on these myths of struggling against the powers that be of of being for the little guy, uh, and and they really captured the imagination. But ultimately their Their struggle came to an end they They were rolled up some they were arrested. some of the leaders were arrested uh they were tried and hanged and the luddites became uh you know, they were harsh punish, punishments back then they did not pull punches uh and the Luddites became kind of synonymous with this irrational uh opposition to progress because of course, after the Luddites go, the factories kick up. You know, we learn in history class in school, oh, the Industrial Revolution, and made so many great things. And we really, the modern world wouldn't be what it is today without that. And so the Luddites were these kind of weird, you know, these weird backwards people that struggled against progress and struggled against the Industrial Revolution. But I think there's actually something uh, more to that. Because I think what they, I don't think they were actually struggling against um, progress, because what happened for them wasn't progress. Was actually, what happened for a lot of people in the first generations of the Industrial Revolution was not so nice. Um, some re- more recent history has looked at living conditions uh, for the, the generations uh, during and after the Industrial Revolution, living standards declined for two generations. So I got it. I got to ask, you know, if you're sitting there, you're you see your livelihood going away. You've got kids to feed. Are you going to have are you going to sit there when someone says, well, wait a couple generations? Yeah, you know, until then, you're, there's going to be a lot of starvation. But after that, things are really going to pick up. I don't think so, right so uh, so, so I, you know I, in doing this reading, I developed a lot of sympathy for them, but I also really um, not just for for a kind of lost cause that you know maybe should have gone a different way, but also for the the kind of ethos that they represented that they should have control over how work is done, and that new technologies are a threat to that, because not only because it's not that they were against productivity, they were against a decline in working conditions, new forms of exploitation. Uh, decline in the quality of goods uh, and they were i think fighting for values that you know uh, really ap- should appeal to most people, if not most factory owners
0: this is and this is a story for the ages because I can see you know uh, from the Luddite story the uh, you know this going on all through the last two hundred years, I mean even up till recently, you know you look at like the Napster and the spotify and and you know the eroding of music and everything else uh, so what are some of the things that we're facing now or uh, anything I missed in the history between here and now that you cite in the book that that is an aspect of what we face uh, now and into the future
1: probably uh after the Luddites you got about almost exactly 100 years later you have the development of something called scientific management from a guy called Frederick W Taylor right um maybe you've heard of taylorism right that's that's named after him what he was he was kind of a, a an industrial engineer but he got his start work uh working on the shop floor right he came from a wealthier background and uh you know some people, you know, they 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 work a blue collar job and you, they develop a kind of blue collar sensibility, not Frederick Taylor. He uh, he he worked in the factories. He did not like his co-workers. He thought they were lazy. He thought they were dumb. He thought he was better than they were. And and, you know, the, the feeling was mutual. They didn't really like him either. He was kind of a, 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 a kind of a nervous personality. They, they describe it differently in the language 100 years ago, but he's kind of a, a, a skittery guy. Right. So um, so he works his way up and eventually he starts saying to the factory owners, he's like, look, you guys, you guys have a problem. Right. We need to revolutionize how people are working. Your problem is you don't actually know how anything in your factory is made. You own the factory, you buy the equipment, you have some kind of vague notion, but then you just let the workers do whatever they're going to do. And let me tell you, those workers are, are doing they're pretty lazy. They're slow. They could be doing a better job. They could be doing it faster. Right. And so so he so what what Taylor did is he got a stopwatch and he would just time these workers and he'd say, you got to go faster. You got to go faster. You got to work harder. Right. He would kind of invent these benchmarks. But then he would say, well, well, they're very scientific. Uh, but his major insight. Right. He, it was a lot of there was a lot of kind of dodginess around his his process. But I think his philosophy is what really, uh, you know, was a breakthrough And kind of has, you know, led us to where we are today in that his his major philosophical breakthrough was if workers know how things are made and management doesn't, workers have the power. If management knows how things are made and workers don't, because maybe you said, okay, worker, you're only going to do one tiny little task. You're not going to do make the whole thing. We're just going to keep you focused on one thing at a time. And we're going to make sure you get faster and faster, work harder and harder right? And we're going to take care of how things are made. We're going to plan everything out. Then management has all the power. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, if that worker's not doing his job, if he starts uh, making a fuss, if he wants higher wages, if he wants to work at a slower pace, it's very easy to get rid of him because you're not going to get rid of all the knowledge that you need to make something. And so this philosophy just takes over uh, manufacturing, it's really interesting, though, because it's a, a Taylor actually bites off more than he could chew. Uh, he decides he's going to go to uh, an armory in Massachusetts uh, where they're making munitions. He's like, "I'm going to come in with my stopwatch and uh, w- you know we'll make these guys work hard." Well, these guys were organized, and importantly, they had a union, and their union had connections to politicians so when they when Taylor comes in. Sets, says to a guy, all right, we're going to time you and make you start going faster. And the guy says, I'm not doing this. And they fire him. Everyone walks off the job, right? The union calls Congress and Congress is like, well, what's this guy doing? He's uh, kind of stirring the pot. He has to testify in front of Congress. This, he's a nervous guy. It's It doesn't go well for him. And uh, he actually never kind of recovers, right? He kind of, he has a health crisis and dies shortly afterwards. Holy crap. But, But his his philosophy survives him and other people pick it up and make it more scientific. Mm -hmm. And that fundamental element, you want to take control of the work process away from workers and put it in the hands of management is a motivating factor, not just behind management, but in in behind a lot of the technology that's introduced into work, right? If we think about, um, you know, so many of the jobs that have been created in the past decade, a lot of jobs that are not so good, but a lot of people are doing them. People need, need jobs, so they're working them. They're, uh, they're, they're riding for uh, Deliveroo. They're driving for Uber. They're working in an Amazon warehouse. Are they controlling the pace of work? Well, if you ask Uber, Uber will say, oh yeah, that's an independent contractor. He's a small business person, right? He, he, they, can, they can control their own pace of work, decide to work, do whatever they want. We just take a small cut. But of course, we, we know we might want to be a little more skeptical of that because actually Uber is controlling that, that work process in a very minute way. It's got its algorithms telling people where to go. It's setting the prices. It's knock, kicking people off the, the platform if they don't do it the way they're supposed to do it, all sorts of things. And so you know, that fundamental philosophical conception by this you know, nerdy little guy from 100 years ago, is still operational in the most advanced kinds of digital technology in these new jobs that are emerging today.
0: I just timed you and you did really well, but I think you can do it faster. So see if you can, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. I had to do that joke. That's it. Uh, I'm out of here. (laughs) The Taylorisms. I'm going to be walking around from here on out. uh, Taylorisms. uh, um, You've given me something new to torture my employees with. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) So is... So what's your what's your and we'll talk about some more about AI and automation and stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, so what do you what do you surmise is is they're good, they're evil, they're bad. uh, What do we need to make changes? What what do you surmise we need to do with all this information you're covering in the book?
1: Well, one thing I do is I look at the history. Right. I mean, you know, um, the guys at Taylor was annoying and the Uber drivers of today are not the only examples. This is continual. Uh, something that happens continually over the history of introduction of technology into work. The the problem that I discovered is that, um, you know, for most of the history, particularly American history, you know, unions advocate for workers in a variety of ways. But one thing that they tended to leave off the negotiating table was control of the work process. Right. Mm. Even when that became a major point of contention. Right. So, unions were happy to say, "Yeah, you need more money, you know um uh, let's change your hours let's um you know introduce some safety measures, but what they what they what the the kind of line they never crossed was workers need to have uh a more say over how work is done. We need to have workplaces that are more democratic right mm. um and so that's one thing that I think we we could um, that's one kind of takeaway, I think, from this book is to say, okay, this was a, a continually a demand from workers. I was reading um, about a very interesting strike, in, uh, auto workers in Lordstown in 1972, right? So this is the height of, you know, the, the well, the, the, you know, Vietnam War, anti-war movement, counterculture, you know, uh, LSD, rock and roll, all of that stuff. But you also have at that moment, new automation technologies being introduced into auto factories. At the time, General Motors is the Amazon.com of the day. It's the largest corporation of the world. Unlike Amazon, those jobs were like really good entry-level jobs. And even the workers who were unsatisfied with it recognized that. They were like, wow, I'm getting paid double what I'd get paid anywhere else. And yet, there was something about that work that was just, they couldn't deal with. It's because the new machines... Kicked up the pace of work. Not only that, but when you work faster, you get sloppy. You make mistakes. And in, a, in, an, in an auto plant, those mistakes can be deadly. And they were. Injury rates are shooting up. but also people are looking down the barrel of a gun of am I going to tend this tiny machine doing the same pulling the crank the same way for 20 years? Yeah, you know, I can buy an extra car. I'll retire early than some earlier than some of my friends. But, you know, what condition is my body going to be in? What condition is my mind going to be in? These guys are looking at the counterculture and saying people are asking more from society. Maybe we should, too. Right. And and so, you know, there's a there's a kind of uh, misnomer that like this division between hard hats and hippies. And I really like this strike because it shows there was a lot of overlap. In fact, Newsweek called the Lordstown 1972 strike. They called it industrial Woodstock because they thought that these <laughs> these guys. It's funny. You look at the picture now and it's like I have longer hair than a lot of them. Yeah. But they were long hairs at that point uh, wearing sunglasses. Wow, Those that's really edgy hippies. Exactly. So, but they were, you know, they were auto workers too, right? They were totally blue collar guys. And, and so they were rebelling against not only their management, but they also had to rebel against their unions, because the unions weren't representing those grievances. So, um, so I think that's a big takeaway from this book, is it that we got to think more about not just, you know, improving pay, which we should, you know, that's important. Not saying it's not important, but also working conditions are important. Autonomy over work is super important. It, you know, people work is something that people spend a lot of their their life doing, and you know, do we want them to be worn out, you know, stulted, uh, you know, uh, or do we want them to to feel fulfilled in some way or to have some kind of stake um, in what they're doing? I think you know, I've had a lot of jobs, and the most satisfying ones, including you know, teaching at university, are the ones where I have a little bit more control, a little bit more say over what I'm doing. Um, and I feel like I can be you know, creative and autonomous in what I'm doing. Um, I'm worried that a lot of these new high-tech jobs creates a very thin strata of people who are able to do that because they're programmers um, and a huge amount of people who have very, very little freedom. Uh, and and, uh, uh, and, and that, I don't think that's going to create a very uh, stable or enjoyable world in the future.
0: And and uh do you follow up how that affects mental health of people in being in that situation when they're constantly just chasing the cheese harder and harder being forced to
1: I mean not so much I mean we do know that like uh uh there's a lot of uh, kind of people who've theorized that things uh you know you and I are old enough to remember the old phrase going postal um uh <laughs> back in the 80s that now now we call them uh it was a mass shooter situation or something like that, <laughs> um, but this, you know, it was this uh, kind of uh, not a trend, but there was a series of of incidents of of people that worked in the postal industry who kind of uh, ended up shooting up. Um, their workplace. And in fact, it wasn't just postal industry, it was other people, there were, there was a few other cases of people working in, in, in kind of low level menial jobs doing this. Um, They just kind of got stressed out. No one listened to them and they took it out on, on the people around them. Right. Um, And so um uh, and and actually at that time when you see people starting to go postal is actually when when the post office introduced new forms of automation mm-hmm. and really uh, uh changed how postal work was being done right so uh so so I think there are clear kind of um mental health issues there I think there are also political issues right if work uh, I'm I'm someone who thinks that people yeah you know go out vote or whatever get involved in you know your community but also I think you know we spend a lot of time at work it's one of the most important parts of our life and we need to have more say over how it goes so that's uh one of my major interests is a kind of political interest right that 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 we start asking those kind of questions that we're not satisfied with you know okay an extra dollar an hour here and there or whatever it is but we have a, a kind of richer uh more engagement uh with uh with 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 our workplaces Yeah, and this brings up
0: really good points about people need to be advocating for stuff. Um, You you know, Zappos was the company that I saw that was really concerned about uh, its employees and uh, them feeling fulfilled on the job by having more Mm -hmm. control. Uh, I know, uh, I forget the name of the company, but there's a guy, I believe he's up in Washington or Oregon. He was the guy who cut his salary from like a million dollars down to 70,000 or he made all of his employees get $70,000 on livable wage in his area. And he's, you know, I I constantly see him on LinkedIn still talking about how much, how much success that was and how fulfilled his employees were. And, you know, uh, I talk a lot about how we've, you know, we've gone through 40 years of stagnant wages, but we've seen, like you say, the highest, a progression of um, automation and and uh and output through from workers and uh you know we've seen the the dissolving of unions the the legislative uh attack on unions that have, have tried to take away their their power Uh, and then you know the fight for minimum wage, and then you know if you really understand what's going on with the billionaires, the Betsy DeVos Council of National Policy, and other groups that really want to enslave workers and pay them nothing, this is the people who fight the against the fifteen dollar an hour, which really should be a whole lot higher when you think about it. Yeah, it's interesting this whole thing. So does it is this something we just have to advocate for ourselves? Do we have to enlist uh, and elect? people to office that will make this fight for us legislatively or um, do we have to have CEOs that have to be visionaries and and quit being dicks basically or or uh, where do we start
1: well my opinion is if you're going to wait for CEOs to stop being dicks you're (laughs) going to be waiting a long time Uh, actually no it's a great question because this is actually another uh, piece of the book it goes to the heart of the title is it you know Workers aren't content to just sit and wait, right? They 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 take matters into their own hands, just like the Luddites did. So my uh, kind of recommendation, including for like people who are on the political left who want to improve the conditions of workers, who might have a lot of great ideas about you know um, you know new legislation and regulation, you know, I'm not opposed to any of that. But I think we also need to really pay close attention to what our workers doing, right? To me, a lot of the um, visions of these like fully automated no working, no work utopias, that's a kind of mistake they made is they weren't really paying attention to work and what workers are doing. And I think when you start looking really closely, you'll see that workers are, uh, especially around technology, they're adapting it to their own needs, they're subverting it, they're breaking it, sabotaging it for all sorts of reasons, right? Uh, one uh, example that I think is really powerful because it's actually an example that is successful uh, more successful than the Luddites in a lot of ways. Um, it's also a bit counterintuitive. Uh, is it One of my examples of, of Luddites in our concurrent moment is actually uh, open source computer programmers. So a lot of people might say, whoa, wait, Luddites hate technology. Computer geeks love technology. They're totally opposite. But Luddites didn't actually hate technology. What they hated was technology you know taking away their autonomy at work and if you look at in the uh in the 90s uh when i first got online there were, the big villain there was bill gates microsoft the borg he was darth vader right now he's a cuddly guy you know helping the world or he's you know he is like a kind of QAnon, satan yeah evil vaccine guy but um uh, but we, we don't need to get into that. But- I just saw.
0: I just saw someone sent me like a meme this morning. Or actually, it's from like a It's like a real post that's going around. Oh, yeah. It shows like this giant. Uh, antenna stick that uh, you you could not put in a human body without having some serious problems of infection, and they they were claiming that that was what's been injecting in the Gates virus. So anyway, I'll yeah, you
1: you'd, you'd feel that when it went in. <laughs> yeah. uh So so why was Bill Gates villainized in the 90s by not and not villainized by crazy conspiracy theorists? He's villainized by computer geeks. Right? He is a computer geek. He's like their hero. you should be their hero. What was the problem? Bill Gates sold software. Right. He sold so, and he wanted people to buy software. And there was a huge culture uh, uh, that had had roots back into computer science communities at universities of people that they they were programming for fun. They made little programs or games to entertain each other because they wanted to learn. Uh, because there were a lot of other that was what people were doing in the early days online. There, you know, only really uh, people who were really good at computers were online, and so. Um, And they and they uh, so how did they do this? How did they, you know, form these communities. They did it by sharing the code. They would say, look, I have a program, this is how it works. You can look at the code, take a piece of it, copy paste, make your own program. That's fine, I don't care because we're doing it for a different reason. We're doing it because we wanna make something cool. We wanna um, enjoy, we wanna learn. Um, and we really think we'll make the world a better place this way. Use And what they did is they called it free or and then open source software because it was open. You could look at the code, the source code and learn from it and adapt it, right? Bill Gates said, oh, this is a problem for me, because I want you to buy software. I don't want you to build software. And if you're looking at the code, that's my that's my property, right? That's, that's my copyright. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you, right? Um, you guys are pirates. Uh, and so uh, this guy, Richard Stallman, eccentric computer programmer um, in, in, out, of, out of MIT, created alternative licenses. He said, okay, Copyright is one thing, but I have this new license. In fact, it's new GNU license. And it says anyone who takes anyone's, first of all, first rule, anyone can look at the code of my programs under this license. The second rule, you can look at it and you can take my code if you want it. If you like it and you want to use it in your program, that's fine. The second rule is if you use my code in your program, you have to follow my rules, not the rules of copyright which means you have to let other people look at this. And so this uh, creates an entire ecosystem of free and open source software where it's not corporations in control. It's grassroots computer programmers uh, who are doing it for themselves. And they get so many people involved and so passionate about this. They create an entire operating system to compete with Microsoft Windows, which is Linux, right? That's the origin of Linux. It's a 16-year-old kid in Finland who... (laughs) <laughs> Posts online and says, "Anybody want to help me ma- build an operating system?" And thousands of people did, and they were and they succeeded. And today, you know, maybe maybe some of your uh, viewers are you know use Linux on their computer. For a lot of people, that's a, a steep learning curve. But even if you don't use it, even if you've never heard of it. A lot of your hardware, like for instance, your router, a lot of the stuff that's happening over at your ISP that gives you your internet, that's all running on Linux because it turns out a lot of those, uh, a lot of those free and open source software programs that people made are really, really good pieces of software. So we have this community of people who rebel against the imposition of this copyright technology so that they can have control over their own conditions. And they're so successful that we still have open source software today. And in fact, one reason why programmers are some of the best paid, most independent jobs around is because there's so much open source software out there that you can't have a company like Apple or Microsoft saying, oh, all of our stuff has to be done on our code. You have to use these open source software libraries. It's also driven a ton of innovation. The guys that made Uber, you think they programmed that app from scratch? No, no, no. They were snatching stuff off of GitHub and slapping it together with duct tape. Okay. That's driven the entire app economy. Uh, It comes from all these free and open source software communities. So it's a great example of something that happened recently. It wasn't even a bunch of unionized people. It was a kind of online uh, sort of uh, sub, sort of subculture that created something that has really shaped the future of technology and done so in ways that I think are are pretty interesting, not perfect, uh, but 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 open up a lot of possibilities for thinking about it. So these are these are the, the our high tech luddites of today that I think we can learn a lot from.
0: So so the power is in the people. Then the people need to advocate for themselves. <laughs>
1: Well, I think if you could boil my philosophy down to anything, I would say power to the people. It would be one way to do it.
0: There you go. I was just reading this morning, and I brought this up. uh, Amazon seeks to block workers from voting by mail in Landmark Union Drive. This is from uh, TheGuardian.com. And uh, 5,000 workers in Bessemer uh, bessemer, bessemer alabama to vote in landmark effort it's kind of weird they're, they're doing the same thing that we just said with our election where they're they don't want the the mail-in ballots oh yeah um, but here's another attempt at uh at what's going on you know uh, one thing one problem we have in america and this is uh one of the problems we have with both politics and and workforce is is this um this you-can-make-it-you-can-be-successful sort of dream where I want to become a millionaire someday. And you're like, I should throw rocks at billionaires that don't pay people enough, but someday I might be a billionaire, so maybe I should keep my mouth shut. And, and in the meantime, like the old, uh, uh, what's that online from Fight Club, we're, we all think we all grew up in an age where we thought we would become millionaires and we're slowly finding out that we're not, and we're getting very mm-hmm. angry about it. Um but, uh, you know, there's there's some other books or authors that we've invited on that talk about rampant, out-of-control capitalism. Capitalism is great. It's a great program. But there is a point where it can become an oligarchy. Uh, in fact, we have, I think, someone up next uh, in the next hour talking about oligarchies in America. Um, and, and so it, it's kind of weird. We sell our soul out in it from American sense. We're like, well, maybe I shouldn't be a jerk to the millionaires. Cause someday I'll be a millionaire and be a jerk and I'll just want to exploit people. <laughs> it's
1: like... Yeah. It's, uh, you know, this is, uh, the, the, you know, the American dream. Right. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, it's a powerful ideology, right? right. To do exactly what you're saying, which is to take, to get people to kind of check their legitimate grievances. Right. Because, well, things will work out in the end. I'll be rich in the end, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I think fewer, I think that's that fewer and fewer people uh, believe that that's the case, right? Um, and I think that you know we're seeing a lot of uh, kind of uh, political activity on the left wing of the spectrum, and a lot of you know, you, I'm I'm really pleased you mentioned this unionization drive at Amazon because it's super important for a lot of reasons, uh, because I think people are recognizing, you know, that there, you know, it, it doesn't just happen by nature. If you, you that we have to fight for the things that, that we want to see in this world, and uh, you know, we by, by not fighting or by losing those fights for a long time, we've gotten into a situation that's uh that we need to get out of, right? Um, Amazon is a great example of a lot of the things I'm talking about because one of the things that really drives unionization efforts or other forms of worker organization at Amazon is the working conditions, which are extremely constrained by technology. I don't know if you've learned much about it what it takes to work at an Amazon warehouse. This is also a great example of how automation is not gonna lead to a post work utopia. Amazon has tons of robots. They've hired, uh, I their workforce has increased by 50% this year, okay? They've had experiments with uh, fully automated warehouses that have not worked out very well at all. The the dexterity required to pick is what they call it, to pick through packages, to to sort them, and to to get them into where they need to be, to wrap them, et cetera, to box them, to do all those kinds of things. It's very hard for a robot to replicate. So instead, so what are those robots doing? What's that automation doing? It's not replacing people because we have, Thousands and thousands more people working in Amazon warehouses. Well, what it's doing is it's tightly controlling every move they make. And Amazon takes this Taylorist stopwatch principle mm-hmm. to, the, to the total extreme, because they, what they do is they outfit their workers with trackers, scanners, sometimes wearables, so they know every precise movement that someone makes right? And exactly how long it takes someone to, uh, to do their job. They call that the rate. And oftentimes the warehouse will oh. publicize the rate. And if you're on the bottom of that, so everyone, imagine that. Imagine you're at your job and everyone knows you're the slowest every time. Wow, That, that really hurts. But it doesn't just hurt because if you're on the rate for too low, if you don't hit your the minimum rate, you're gone and there's no it's very hard to get around that although some workers have tried to figure out ways to kind of kind of game the system and what this allows amazon to do is it allows them to rationalize and eliminate any kind of downtime that someone has so you are constantly working if you look at what people say about these places they say you are you're it just drains you utterly right you are a shell of a person when you're done with your shift you are so tired you have no autonomy Right. Um, And and so these are very these are poor, poor condition jobs. The other thing is they make you work faster and faster. And just like with the auto workers uh, that I mentioned before, that leads to lots of injuries. Amazon's the most dangerous workplace in America. And this was before covid. And we know that now with covid there they've been these warehouses been a source of outbreaks. Uh, the big warehouse in Minneapolis at one point had a COVID infection rate at four times the level of the rest of the community. And those people, they don't stay in the warehouse. What do they do? They go home, right? And then spread it throughout their communities. So, um, and Amazon, they cut every corner you could imagine, right? Sure. (laughs) Their press releases talk about we've given out, uh two point five billion in bonuses, and we've got uh hand washing stations and every you know every ten feet or something right when you boil it down to per worker it's you know people are getting an extra hundred bucks a year uh it's nothing to really write home about, but the point is these working conditions are very bad, and technology is is a is a huge component of that it's a definitely the the main part of the recipe to to get people to have no control over what their own bodies are doing right. Um, so that they are as productive as possible, and what hap- what that means is they get injured. Uh, Amazon pressures them; you have to report to their medical center, and they're like, "Well, how could you know that the rotator cuff injury was from our package? Maybe maybe wow. you banged it playing basketball. You know, it's hard to identify. It's not like your arm you, you get severed, right? It's a it's a, an injury that builds over time. They use every excuse in the book to avoid." Um, uh, uh, you know, letting people have time off. Um, if wow. you take time off, that can be a demerit and cost you your job. But mm. they also have no problem running through people, just like ringing them out. Uh, turnover at an Amazon warehouse is 100%, which means their entire workforce how? in their warehouse will be different in a year. That means no one lasts more than nine months to a year. Uh, so, um, and, uh, and they don't care, you know, one thing that I've, uh, when I've talked to people who worked at Amazon warehouses, uh, one thing they say is this is the easiest j- job to get I've ever had you know you show up you fill out a form they don't they don't even look at it they don't care because you're just a piece of meat to them and they know you're going to be gone in a few months anyway uh so i don't think this is a good way forward because this is this is really what we're looking at as far as the future of work we're looking at we're not looking at living like the jetsons right or star trek we're looking at amazon workers this is where hundreds of thousands of jobs have been created The pay they pay again, they pay better than, um, you know, working at Dollar General or something like that in a lot of places. But people are totally wrecked by them and they have no say over what they're doing. And Amazon, being a high tech company, is also drawing on some of the most high tech surveillance capabilities. They've literally hired the Pinkerton Detective Agency, which was used to break unions 150 years ago in extremely violent ways. But they're surveilling everyone. Um, at both at the uh, Amazon warehouse, as well as at Whole Foods, because they want to snap, snip any kind of unionization or organizing in the butt. And I think this is what we really have to see is technology is actually being used as a weapon to really immiserate people and to prevent them from, you know, living the lives that I think almost anyone would say people deserve to live. And if, if that's the case, we have to struggle not just against the companies, but we have to struggle against a lot of the technologies that these companies have been using on their workers. Wow. That's
0: just extraordinary. And like I say, I have friends that will be like, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll talk about how great Jeff Bezos is. And, and they'll talk about how great uh, Elon Musk is. And I'm like, yeah. I, you know, they really don't seem like all that sort of guy. You know, a lot of people still uh, talk about how great Steve Jobs was. And if you knew Steve Jobs, he was an incredible prick.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and an asshole and, and, you know, destroyed a lot of people. I mean, the, the thing that he did where he regulated people's wages or the ability to go to other uh, places in Silicon Valley was a huge scandal. Oh, yeah. And, and they, uh, they
1: still do that today. The companies yeah. still collude because that's, again, that's a way to, you if you force people to stay, you control them a bit more, right? Yeah. Um, we, Google got in trouble for it uh, a few years ago, but there's every indication that this kind of collusion uh, continues. I don't think the Trump administration was going to bother uh, yeah. with those things. We'll see if Biden... Uh, changes but silicon valley is very uh the democratic party in silicon valley get are very copacetic so um so we'll have to see uh one thing that i've learned a lot from is i live in europe now um, and some things are different uh some things are the same right amazon warehouses are here uh they they have a lot of the same problems but they what they do have that that we that we don't, that Americans, most Americans don't benefit from, is they have a lot of regulations around privacy and around how technology can be used that makes it so you so these companies can't just do whatever they want. And, and if they break the rules, they they get in trouble. They have to pay fines, they have to change the way they do things. Um, and I think that's one really nice thing to see because a lot of times, you know, we talk about well wouldn't it be nice if work was like this or like that, or if you know politics were different um but we're kind of just coming up with a, a kind of fantasy that you know what if everything was different right but here we actually have an example of in the in reality it is different it doesn't have to be the way it is I, in the u s you know they have more humane conditions here uh again, it's not perfect there are problems right, and I think there will continue to be problems um but one th- but you know we There's much less inequality um, and and working conditions are better. Wages are better. And a lot of the technology, particularly surveillance technology, uh, there are strong kind of prohibitions about that Uh, in France. There's actually one one kind of interesting thing I learned, too. I'm I'm an academic. I buy a lot of books. Uh, when I first moved to the Netherlands, I could, they didn't even have Amazon. So I, I couldn't buy stuff there. But uh, when I did, when they did get it, the books weren't cheap. I was so used to these like massive cost cuts in Amazon. You go on, you could probably find my book for, you know, less than the publishers selling it on Amazon. And that's because they, they deliberately sell books at a loss to drive out competitors, drive out, you know, the small bookstores that, when I was younger, that was like a big part in getting really inspired and getting passionate about reading and learning uh, and here they you know in France, they actually have a law that you're not allowed to sell books below cost uh, and it's wow. specifically to protect. It's specifically to protect um, independent bookstores who who don't have that option that that a big player like Amazon does. So uh, it's been very educational. I would say Europe, uh, France in particular, uh, uh, because France actually stopped the Industrial Revolution for a generation. Uh, England failed, but France won for a little bit. But uh, it's a much more kind of Luddite continent. And I think that it makes the quality of life much better. Um, I think, you know, I I really wish that my friends and family back home could have some of the benefits that I do here. Um, And just not just me personally, but you see around, people are happier. You have more leisure time. uh, You have uh, less anxiety about, you know, how am I going to pay my bills? What if I get hurt? You know, what's my insurance going to be like? Um, Again, it's not perfect. It's maybe not even trending in a great way, but it is a real example of how things, even in a kind of advanced capitalist economy, could be a little bit better.
0: This has been awesome man uh you know i saw the I saw stories in france and i, I can't remember what movie it was maybe it was a michael Moore movie, but they they showed about how in France and other European countries like the the companies that are based here gladly do business over there and they pay much more benefits, much more health insurance. You know, some of these countries even have, if you're pregnant as a mother, they have someone who comes by and helps after birth, they come by and help. They give them time off. The quality of life is just so much better. And You know, over here, people will be like, well, then, you know, they'll have to lay off more people and they won't do business here. Well, they're, they're gladly doing business in these other countries and they're still making a profit doing fine. They're, they're willing to, to, to do this. Um, it was funny when you were talking about the Amazon, uh, work um thing that's going on there it reminded me a lot of foxconn i'm like maybe that's mm-hmm. what we're headed to we're all just gonna be like foxconn like eventually amazon will just be like you don't have to go home you can sleep in the cots with everybody else in the rooms there
1: yeah i think you know this is uh one thing that technology also does is it makes it a lot easier to globalize your production so that means yeah why would you make stuff uh it is a pro- an issue that 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 europe can face and uh, struggles with is that good working conditions, companies want to work where they're where they're worse. Um, so uh, you know what why 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 pay American wages when you can you know move overseas and and technology is a big part of how that happens of how companies coordinate these global supply chains uh how they manage you know the the logistics of all that and so it's not that it's just a a political decision it's also you know technology is involved in that but what that does is yeah it's going to create a kind of pressure downward pressure right uh right now china um you know their economy is you know very different than it was even 10 years ago um they actually have a huge middle class now but their their working conditions are they, they have this system called nine uh Uh, I think it's nine, nine, six. You have to work nine, nine hours a day, six days a week uh, is, is the standard. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and and that seems shocking to us. And yet, when I think about sometimes that I was scraping to get by, I probably wasn't too far from from those kinds of conditions I, where they weren't always quantified. But if I had if I had done actually bothered to sit down, I, if, I don't think I would have wanted to do this and map out like how much work am I actually doing? Um, you know, I, I don't think I would have looked much better uh, you know, if I'm working multiple jobs, I've got some freelance position, I've got to, you know, prepare for a lot of, uh, meetings or classes or something like that. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, we're, you know, how is this stuff going to change? I think that, you know, yeah, we need to ask for, you know, better regulations. We need to kind of have changes in the political establishment, but I think we, we need, uh, uh kind of deeper, more granular changes, which means we need to kind of start changing workplaces. Uh, And that's going to come from workers who are fed up with their conditions and who also have a good understanding of how things work, where they are. And when we start listening to them and helping, not just telling them what to do, but actually watching what they're already doing and help to kind of accelerate those kinds of things, right? For them to say, look, I worked at Amazon, I know all the abusive technology that we need to reform, I'll tell you all about it, I know how it works, Those are the kind of things where we can start making progress. My worry is, you know, even if we I mean, it's not the the biggest worry, it'd be a big improvement, but some of the failings of past moments in history that I talk about in my book, where you did have really strong kind of pro-worker movements who were politically influential is again, like I mentioned before, those kinds of Uh, conditions were left off the table. The people who were running those movements were like, well, technology is just neutral and it's going to increase productivity and we're all benefit. And it turned out that wasn't the case, right? That was, that was a mistake. Uh, so we need to kind of put uh, put those kinds of issues back on the table right that 's kind of uh, one of my main agendas uh, in in writing this book is to try and get get those kinds of issues to for for yeah I want politicians to talk about them but i 'm really interested in everyday people talking about them and understanding how they can kind of connect with other people who are having similar problems and you know let 's start working through it, start organizing. You know, is it, is it unionizing uh, or, or doing other things to kind of chip away at some of this accumulated power by these massive corporations?
0: And that's really important, the power back to the people, because one of the problems we have, especially with Citizens United, is there's more and more of these corporations that own these, uh, these uh, politicians, and they just play to their donor class. As we go out, Gavin, this has been a wonderful discussion, and uh, I encourage everyone to pick up the book. Give us your plugs so that people can order the book up from you and where to find more about you on the interwebs.
1: Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, the easiest way is to, you can, you can, uh, Breaking Things at Work is published by Verso. You can order it from the Verso website if you want to avoid the Jeff Bezos Borg. Uh, (laughs) At the same time, you know, no one, no one's hands are perfectly clean. So if you go on Amazon and pre-order it, I think it boosts my stats a bit, which can help me out a little. I, I confess, I don't know how all of this works, but other people told me this. I'll leave it up to anyone who wants to purchase it. You may eventually, my first book I wrote was about, uh, based on my dissertation, and was about piracy. Uh, Not to my knowledge is my book available that way, but I imagine it will only be a matter of time, not necessarily endorsing that, but I think my number one priority is for people to read it. you know, uh, I, I don't I'm not anticipating, you know, I've le- left the American dream behind, Chris. I'm not thinking I'm going to get to become a millionaire off of this one. I'm really in it because I think that the the research in the book is interesting to people. Their stories are interesting and relevant to people. Um, and I, I just want people to to read it and check it out. If you want to follow me, uh Twitter's probably the best place. Um, you know, I have a Facebook, too, but uh, I'm trying to use that less and less. Um, I don't have a. Uh, I don't actually have a LinkedIn um, because uh, I'm not very professional in that way, I guess. But but Twitter, if you, you can find me uh, Gavin Mueller PhD, you can Google me, you'll find all the all sorts of things I don't want you to find about me. Uh, there was an alt-right hit job on me a few years back. Oh wow. I think the I think that's gone down in the search rankings over time. Yeah. Uh, don't don't pay attention to that stuff. But but you can find me um, on Twitter. You can find my website uh gavinmueller.com you can email me Gavin Mueller at Gmail. Um, I really do try to respond, uh, you know, um, um, and I always appreciate, um, hearing from people. Uh, but yeah, you know, other than that, uh, yeah. Um, Uh, you know, I encourage you guys to, I'm not, I'm not your guru, you know, I'm just another guy here trying to figure out things like everyone else. I, what I would really love to hear is, um, you know, if any readers have their own experiences with technology at work, where they had to struggle with something, solutions they came up with, maybe even, uh, you know, things, uh, you know, breaking, breaking a few rules or or laws, I'm not going to snitch. Uh, Not that guy. Uh, But I'm really interested in those kind of experiences, too. I'm kind of, uh, you know, I want to know what everyday people are doing. Um, So. uh, So, yeah, again, I'm really uh, happy to be here. Um, I enjoyed my conversation with you tonight, Chris. uh, And, uh, you know, I hope people check out the book. And learn a little bit about uh, kind of the history of work and technology um, and the struggles that have taken place. And maybe um, we can all work together on creating a a future that benefits uh, a lot more, uh, that benefits the majority of us, right, instead of a slim minority.
0: There you go, guys. All encapsulated in one big pitch there. Gavin, thank you very much for spending some time and sharing us the details of your book.
1: Thank you very much, Chris. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. Me too. Pick up his book, Breaking Things at Work. The Luddites are right about you. About why. Let me do that over. Breaking (laughs) Things at Work. The Luddites are right. About why you hate your job by Gavin Mueller. Uh, check it out. Order it up. You know, it's funny when I say that title, "Breaking Things at Work." Do you remember that old meme from like the early days of the internet where that guy would go crazy and he just broke his whole cubicle and he broke you know keyboard over the monitor and stuff. Oh yeah, oh
1: yeah. Remember I have that? a great, I have a great collection of those memes. There's actually a lot of Garfield. Uh, versus a computer uh, comics that I that's my like kind of particular niche that I really enjoy Garfield with the chainsaw on the computer yeah
0: that's what that always reminds me of breaking things at work Uh, so check it out guys Uh, order it up and uh, get the advanced copy it'll be out on February 9th 2021 so coming up here i think another week or two uh be sure to grab that also guys to see the video version of this uh, recorded uh conversation uh you can go to youtube.com for chris voss see the books for are reading and reviewing at goodreads.com for slash chris voss you can also go to facebook.com for the chris voss show uh you can follow numerous groups on there and on uh linkedin as well and instagram as well we put a lot of the broadcasts on instagram uh so follow us over there we certainly appreciate you guys tuning in be sure to give us like subscribe to us uh, at all the different places that we're out there and we'll see you guys next time